Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. My name is Julian Carl, CEO and co-founder of Synergy Group. And today I've got another great interview for you with Sue Barrett. Sue runs a sales transformation consulting and education firm. And I think that it's a really interesting interview because Sue tends to be not afraid to mince her words, which I found very refreshing. And is very clear about who she is as a leader in the business and, and who she is as, as a human. And I think that's a really powerful thing when it comes to, to leadership. So I would love to hear what you think about this interview. It is a, it is a bit of a different one. So uh, leave a review. I'd love to hear it. And once again, happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Well, welcome, Sue, to the, the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really happy for you to uh, be a part of it so that the audience has a bit of an idea about who you are and what you do. Can you share a little bit about Sue Barrett and where you work? Sure. Um, well, I run a company called Barrett Consulting Group, salesessentials.com and the Selling Better Movement. And as you probably gather, I specialise in helping people and businesses sell better. So we're a business consulting and education firm that specialises in everything to do with sales from strategy, process, people and culture. Fantastic. And is there an interesting fact that you can share about uh, Barrett? Prior to starting Barrett, I had spent about seven or eight years in the sales recruitment industry. Uh, this is pre-the-internet, I might add, where I had the opportunity to interview about 8,000 people in sales and sales leadership roles face-to-face -face, about an hour each. I classify that as my unofficial PhD into salespeople. And, of course, working at a company like Morgan & Banks, where I was, uh, you also had to be very good at selling as well. So I became inherently interested in what makes for good sales and sales leadership capability. And as my brain sees the world in patterns, I started to pick up on all sorts of things. So I decided to start my business, Barrett, back on the 9th of January 1995 to basically unpack and understand what good selling is all about and how we can sell ethically and honourably into the future. Uh, 8,000. Yeah. That, that's a lot. That's a lot of interviewing. Yes, it is. That's a lot of interviewing. So I'd like to take you back. Yes. All the way back to your very, very first leadership role. Can you share a little bit with the listeners about what that was? Okay. Well, actually, that was at school, in high school, okay. um, where I actually became uh, the captain of swimming at a boys' school that had turned co-ed. So there's about eight boys to one girl. Um, I was an elite swimmer at the time. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why I got the role. But I also was uh, a prefect, one of the school prefects. And um, I found that to be quite interesting, particularly back in the late 70s, being a young girl or woman uh, in a sea of young men and having to uh, stamp my uh, credentials, if you like. I could certainly swim faster than all of them, so that was easy to prove. Yeah. But it was actually how to hold my ground uh, as a person yeah. uh, and as a young woman in that. So I kind of jokingly refer to this as my introduction to corporate Australia, uh, learning how to handle myself. But one of the things that I learned was never to actually shortchange yourself. And you'll find that my principal at the time, uh, Peter Gebhardt, um, actually wrote a reference to me at the end of the school year 
and amongst other things he wrote, she will not be bullied or tyrannised by prevailing views and attitudes. So I remember a couple of years earlier before I assumed these leadership roles that um, I love learning, and I always have and I always will, and although it wasn't seen as cool at school to love learning, teachers enjoyed it, of course, but the, your fellow students didn't. And so, of course, I used to get ostracised. And I was a bit like Hermione Granger out of, uh, you know, Harry Potter, <laughs> putting my hand up all the time, asking yeah. questions and answering questions and so on and so forth. And so I do remember having a bit of a chat with myself about the age of 15, um, saying, you know, I could either dumb myself down and become popular or I can carry on my love of learning. But I also checked the situation out and I thought, you know, we don't have many girls here and they need us for a variety of things and I'm a pretty handy person to have around. I can do quite a few things. And so I decided that um, I wasn't ever going to be pushed into a corner and left alone because they'd still use me, so I'm very handy. So I decided actually not to dumb myself down and carry on my love of learning. And that helped me uh, acquire these leadership roles at school. Uh, as I said, it didn't really popularity contests, but I know I could leave that school with dignity and grace, knowing I'd done the best I could uh, to try and do my best at school, uh, but also on my own terms but also as a leader of uh, the swimming team and also as a prefect of the school. Why did you decide to specifically take on a leadership role at the school? Was there something behind it or was it just the circumstances? I think perhaps from what uh, my principal said, um, I, I can't abide injustice. I'm all about respect and decency, human decency. Um, I will not let things go by if I see someone or something being um, affected in some way. So I tend to just by default stand up and speak out. Mm. That gets you noticed. Um, as I said, it doesn't always win a popularity contest, but if you've got a good argument and you can put a good case forward for why you're speaking up, uh, then people do take notice. So I'm not a fan of opinions because they can mean nothing, but if you have a good argument that actually is based on fact and evidence, and you can put it forward. So, of course, I was in the debating team as well at school. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this just gives me some sort of, I don't know, it's just in my nature as a person, I think, to assume and take on these sorts of roles, whether I'm a leader of people or a leader of an idea or initiative. It's just kind of part of my DNA, I think. Okay. And do you think that those early sort of exposure to leadership in the school setting, it was during that time that you thought, oh, maybe I'm going to... Uh, carry this leadership thing into my career? I had no awareness at the time of that at all. I was kind of almost doing this instinctually, so um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, I was one of those people that was both very artistically creative but also very scientific and analytical. I couldn't find a career um, or anything that was present at the time that I could go, yeah, that's what I want to do. Um, I tried to get into medicine, but I didn't quite get the marks to get into medicine, only because the boy next door, who was eight years older than me, I'm the oldest of four, he, I was like his kid sister. He was a fantastic young guy, and I loved him to bits, just like my older brother kind of thing. And, um, and he did medicine, so I went, oh, okay, I'll try and do that. I had no idea. <laughs> so, um, but I ended up doing science at Monash, and you know, just trying to understand what I wanted to do. I didn't know where I was going with my career, so I just... I'm the sort of person that has a go. I'll try stuff. As long as it doesn't hurt other people or yourself in the process, yeah. you know, I'll have a go and just acquire things and then hope at some stage I will find what my calling or my path is. Okay. 
So let's fast forward a little bit to your first leadership role in, in a corporate environment. Mm. Can you share a little bit about what that was? Yes, well, actually, um, it came about when I was working at Morgan & Banks. Um, I'd been a very good sales recruiter, and then there was a new initiative that came in, and I put my hand up for it, and it was a new sort of business unit. Now, at the time, they wouldn't actually fund me to do that, so I had to carry on recruiting for a period of time and then try to grow this other business and sort of you know have them cross over and eventually become its own entity. And in that, I ended up growing just a small team, but part of a, a much bigger unit. Although I also assume roles of training and developing um, all the other consultants uh, in the Melbourne business, which had grown to something like 120, 130 people at the time. Okay. So I only I ran my own business area unit from scratch. I started from scratch at Morgan and Banks and had a small team and I led them. So I was not only leading a team of people, I was actually leading a new initiative, okay. a new idea, a pioneering opportunity. And, and then also being, if you like, the person that actually was responsible for training and developing from a sales perspective, the other consultants in the business. So, you know, different kinds of leadership roles. I was on the leadership committee. I still remember even back then having to stand and defend um, women. I mean, I, I used to love wearing trousers and suits. Mm-hmm. And there was even one of the managers in our management meeting who was actually having a, an issue with one of his female staff because she was wearing pants. And I just sat there looking at him as the only other woman. There were all men around me. Sounds like school again. Mm. Um, and all these other men around me. And this guy complaining about her wearing pants. And I just sat there looking at him going, what are you, like, what are you talking about? And fortunately, the other men actually said, what are you talking about? Yeah. And, and and they said, look at Sue. I mean, she's very professional. You know, she wears pants. And his response there was, oh, that's just Sue. Like I was some third creature. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost like I had my own kind of little entity. I didn't belong to women or men or something. I was in the middle. Um, and it's kind of interesting because I do present myself as a human being first. Yeah. Regardless of gender. Yeah. And so, but these are the sorts of things even in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s yeah. that we still have to stand up for. So you can probably gather I'm also an advocate for um, equality, equity, women, yeah. and, uh, you know, as I said, decency and human respect. And so you should be. Yes. So we should all be. Exactly. Yeah. So what, what, what were some of the biggest learnings from that role? Um, being able to um, work with your people. Um, and being able to provide creative environments for them where they can find how they can express themselves. One of my greatest joys is when I came back from a client meeting one day, because I was still selling as well, because it was a small unit, was my assistant who was there had actually, because she'd listened to me talk to people over the phone and how to understand certain things. When I came back into the office, she had taken upon herself to actually sell a number of items over the phone, even though technically she wasn't a salesperson. But because I created an inclusive environment, and I believe everybody lives by selling something and you can learn how to do it, the joy on her face and the actual warmth in my heart and happiness of her saying, look what I've done, where I hadn't even asked her to do that, but she took it upon herself to do it was um, representative of the type of leadership I like to create. And again, you're not always aware of these things. You can look back in hindsight and realise, oh, actually, you know, but I really enjoyed that moment. And she kept doing it, and it was terrific. So it was a real team sport uh, that we were working together. I I play sport, I swim, I play hockey. I, I love working in teams. And so to me, leadership is not about someone on a pedestal. Um, I probably lead from the front 
but I also make sure that my people are well equipped and capable and I also get out of their way so that I help them to become magnificent as well. Okay. And do you think it would, was it this role that you thought after having a taste of corporate leadership that I want to be a leadership role from this point on? Again, coming back to my kind of, um, you know, warrior, you know, roots in a sense, I was looking at all of these things and I realised that where I was, I couldn't actually create the kind of um, business that I really wanted to create. And so I set about actually going out on my own. Right. And um, it wasn't that I had a bad time at Walkabanks, it was my apprenticeship for running my own business. Mm. And I learned a lot of things from them and they trained us well and I was very, I'm very grateful for having worked with them. But I wanted to do bigger things. Um, and it doesn't mean bigger as in bigger business things, but bigger ideas, take bigger initiatives to the world, fundamentally change um, the perspective of what selling is and, and have it as a life skill, not just a, as a sales skill for certain people, and also to remove the derogatory nature. And there's all sorts of stuff that's mm. in there that I went out on my um, own and then started to bring on people, bring them on board, um, again, create that team culture and environment that I know works best. So we're very team, we're very egalitarian here at Barrett, very team-based. Everyone can be a leader of an initiatives, ideas, of, you know, projects. Um, yes, I'm the boss at the end of the day, and yes, you know, I'm helping set direction, but I take advice and guidance from my people as well. But ultimately, I have to make decisions, mm. and I'm very happy to do that. But I do it in consultation, and together we collaboratively create much better ideas I'm not the sole architect of this business where it's at today. It's the it's the accumulation and, and collaboration of ideas from a range of people that have worked in this business over the last nearly 24 years. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit more about about Barrett. So you've had some listeners at context of a you know, number of people and, and sort of any any particular uh, things you want to share with the audience about Barrett. Well. You know, my, the market that we operate in is uh, littered, if I can say that word, with lots of sales gurus with a book talking about this little bit of selling or that little bit of selling. Um, we're very different. We are a systems thinking business. Uh, we understand that selling is a complex variable system and it's never going to deliver, you know, work on a straight line. So we've spent these many years unpacking all of that and bringing bodies of work and information that are validated and evidence-based so that businesses can understand how to manage and lead and grow and develop not only great sales, but great sales people and sales cultures, but that the whole organisation actually is client-centred. So it's one of those things you can't see everything at the start, mm. but given, as I said, I see the world in patterns, you collect information and you can see different things happening. And I, I wanted to move selling away from being personality-driven and I wanted to move it away from being, oh, you know, just be like Julian, he's awesome, to what does Julian do? How does he do it? Why is he really good at what he does? And then, so right back when I said to you when I first, you know, left school, went to university, studied science and didn't know what I wanted to be, what I've turned into is a behavioural scientist, one, but also an architect and an engineer, two, which is building out the architecture of you know sales methodology, sales framework, sales strategy, um, you know sales execution platforms, resources and tools and capabilities where you can actually you know not only drive great strategy 
but also teach people how to lead great sales teams, how to be a great salesperson, but with ethics and honour and integrity. And when we get to do this kind of work, great things happen and it's really um, rewarding. But to build all of that out and create it took a bloody long time. <laughs> yeah. But we're, we're here now, we're ready to go. So we've been, and thanks thanks to many of our clients who have been willing and conscious uh, guinea pigs for us over the years as well. Yeah. So, you know, to have that trust in us to help them and to work alongside us to, you know, to be those leading lights and leading edges to run really great businesses that way. Um, that's been a real privilege. So what are you learning about yourself as a leader now? I'm learning um, not to take things as personally, perhaps as I have in the past. As you probably gather, I'm a very passionate and committed person and, you know, this has been my life's work, you know, but I can't take myself too seriously and I have to learn how to be able to detach from that because life is more than just, you know, your career uh, or your work and, um, and I'm very fortunate to have, you know, a family, um, I'm very fortunate to be able to carry on doing sport, um, creative a, you know, a, a aspects of my life as well. So I've learned about myself um, that business is business, but you can also have really decent, honourable relationships with people and that business doesn't have to be impersonal, but as long as you be careful not to take it too personally. So it's that kind of fine line and how you manage that. So I'm not a mercenary. Um, I mean, you won't die wondering with me, but I'm not a mercenary. Um, uh, but I'll be very clear, and I'll also say what I don't know. Yeah. I also love learning from people. I think, um, you know, don't. I, I, I never assume I'm always right. I, I can't because there's just too much information. Something. So I think I'm adaptive. Yeah. I think I'm very adaptive. Um, and yeah, I mean, and I, I realize that I'm actually bloody determined and dogged and, you know, bullheaded and, um, and I don't give up. Well, you have to be running your own business, don't exactly. you? You have to be. Yep. There's no other way to just float through it. Yeah. You've got to have all those traits. Exactly. And I think I'm optimistic. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a naturally optimistic person, despite the psychologist back when I was 24, when I was going for a job trying to find out what I should do with my life, telling me after my psychometric profiling, who's a bit basil faulty like I want you to imagine this kind of creature, <laughs> um, telling me in, in very, no uncertain terms that I was too optimistic, that I was like Pollyanna and it was a, 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 a fatal career flaw. I mean, I, I know, I was, I was quite taken aback by that, I must say, but then I went, stuff you, mate. Um, I'm going to show you. Like I, I, I wasn't going to accept that. And I think that's part of me as well. There's just this like, I don't think so. Yeah. This is BS. I'm, I'm going to keep moving forward, and I'll come back with an argument for you later, mate. It may not be for a couple of years, but you're wrong. <laughs> right? Because it's, it's, I mean, how unfair to say that to someone. I wasn't blindly optimistic. Mm. I'm very realistic. Yeah. But it's this kind of determination to, you know, my mother always raised me, there's no such word as can't. Mm. So what can you do? Mm. It's always what can you do? That's right. You may be feeling miserable, and I've had my moments of misery and, you know, thinking, crap, how am I going to get out of this? But you always go, okay, what can you do? Mm. You can always do something. Mm. Mm. Anyway, that's kind of a sort of snippet <laughs> of the things <laughs> I've learned. 
So I'd like to explore some of your more generalist views on leadership. And I'll start with a, a question which I always think is a bit of a funny one which I because of the responses I get. What's the biggest myth about leadership that you've come across in your travels? Well, there's no one perfect style, right? And I'm so sick to death of the bloody corporate celebrity CEO that I could just choke. So they're basically they're 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 just not good for business. Hmm. If they're a win at all costs, look at me, look at me, I'm the best thing since sliced bread, then let's just put a you know, let's just blow it up. It's hmm. terrible. Hmm. So I'm sick of that. <laughs> okay. And uh, how do you describe yourself as a leader? Well, um, determined, um, focused, um, clear once I've sorted out, you know, I'm, um, I'm not rash. I'd say that I am, I take calculated risks. I'm not a gambler, you know, so I, I you know, being big isn't the only thing about, you know, being successful. I want to be competent and effective and do really good work that delivers absolute value, that people can walk away better off for having work with us. So I'm, I make promises I can keep and keep the promises I make. Mm. Um, and I don't BS people. I just don't want to. I, I, I'm, I, if, I was, I, if there's a couple of words, if I would describe myself, I'm a person of purpose, mastery, agency and candour. That would be the four words I probably. I mean, you have to ask other people, but I, that's the feedback I get. Okay. That I would be a person of purpose, mastery, um, agency, and candor. Okay. Are there any particular models, frameworks that you subscribe to that you like from a leadership perspective? Because I think I always ask this question because we train so many. I'm always curious about what are actually people using and what are they like. Are there any that you sort of. Well, it, it, it depends what we're looking at. I mean, if we're talking about strategy, if we're talking about people development, um, if we're talking about, you know, um, just you know, running good business and things. I mean, there's lots of models out there. I think probably I would, from a strategy perspective, I always I, I tend to subscribe to, you know, the, the good work of that, that Michael Porter first put in place, but then also the Blue Ocean strategy work. All right. So I, I like looking at those sorts of models as great ways to think about, particularly the value chain of Michael Porter. Mm. I think that's a really good way to actually check on the, the hygiene of your business and the various elements. Because you can have a competitive advantage in any of those areas, but if you want a complete clear water strategy, the blue ocean strategy then takes you to that next level. But then you have to make sure that the value chain for that is yeah. going to support that. So I would look at that. Okay. Um, in terms of people development, uh, if I can touch on sales leadership. Yeah, please do. All right, because that's the worst trained area of all leadership. It's mm. shocking. And, of course, they usually put the best salesperson in the sales manager's role. Not always, but mostly. And that's a disaster waiting to happen. I made that mistake myself many okay. years ago. Okay. So. They've actually proved the Peter Principle uh, actually around this. Um, yeah. It was a concept in 69, I think, by someone, I can't remember his name now, some professor. They've actually proved it. They've actually got a statistical correlation that the higher performing salesperson you are, the more probability you're going to get put into a leadership role. And then when you're put into that leadership role, there's a negative correlation to performance for your team. <laughs> got it? Yeah, absolutely. So there's those sorts of things. So the thing is that if we look at what good sales leadership is, sales management, there are 
orientations and constellations we have to look at in there and help people be skillful in that. So there's various frameworks. We've built our own sales strategy and operations model, which is unique in the world, and mm. that really helps sort out a lot of thinking and, and decision making for not just sales leaders but businesses. So, um, you know, obviously putting myself forward, but that model is very effective at helping people manage those sorts of things and auditing what's happening, what's not. Um, from a coaching perspective and a development perspective, I mean, there's lots of stuff out there. I mean, you know, you grow models, you know, a lovely base model. The problem in sales particularly is they don't usually have something to coach to. So we need processes in place and behaviours and activities which have been made visible. Now I can coach to something. So, but grow is a lovely model. You know, there's all sorts of, of things out there and I can't even remember all the different models, but there's lots of stuff. Um, you know, I think that the 70-20-10 learning model is a fantastic way of describing how people need to learn and how we place, you know, snacks of learning and make learning perpetual. Mm. You know, hello, Hermione Granger again, let's just be constantly learning. Um, so how do we create those little snacks? So longitudinal learning, um, getting returns on investment, moving away from just your, you know, one or two day course, you know, rah, rah, pump your tyres up starting to make learning a lifelong thing. A lot of younger people coming through, that's what they want. So we need to have all sorts of interesting ways to create from online to in-field, self-developmental, you know, all sorts of resources to keep learning perpetually moving forward. Um, I don't know, I, I, I suppose it's, I've almost got too many to even think about. Them. They're the ones I would probably start yeah. to pull out. Okay. I don't know if that helps, but... And uh, I'd like to explore the, the one you've developed a bit. If, if that's okay, because I'm always curious when, when people do that. So what leads you to this idea that whatever existed wasn't enough and you needed to make your own? Okay. With selling, if you look at the... We, we've written a paper called The History of Sales Methodologies, okay? And it's a tour of selling over 200 years. And it's interesting when you look at the roots of, of sort of more formalised selling that the ethics of selling, there's a number of people back in the early 1900s who are very much about ethical selling and about community, which is what we're all about too. But there have been a few misdirects along the way. And, Wolf you know, of Wall Street. Well, and, you know, other unethical <laughs> kinds of, you know, and if you, if you ever get a chance, I'm happy to send you the link to it and you can have it for people to read. But it's a fascinating read. But stemming through it, is about ethical, honourable, human-centred sales practices. Yet there are other methodologies that have been, um, you know, promoted and of course used to exploit people. Now, the world of selling has looked at selling purely through a sales methodology: how I sell to you, not sales strategy, not sales process management. Um, not setting up an infrastructure that looks at a whole range of variables. So in our studies as a business, as we're kind of like a self-funded research project really, studies over you know many years, we've started to put together a whole lot of components and pieces together that actually make up this complex variable system. I liken being a sales leader to the person spinning all those plates on sticks. You know, like they've got all these different, because yeah. they've got to keep an eye on all of them and what's wobbling, what's not. So you've got to think about, you know, what knowledge do we have? So is it market knowledge, customer knowledge, competitor knowledge, organisational knowledge? We've then got to think, what is our strategy? What's our value proposition? You know, what is our messaging? You know, what are we aiming for? And then underneath that, we've got things like, okay, what are the market segments we're going after? 
What's the sales messaging we should have in place? What are the sales processes that are going to deliver that strategy? You know, what are the um, what are the technologies or the governance models and things that we need to have in place there as well? Then we've got sales management. You know, then we've got sales development, and then we've got to actually measure and map all the metrics and stuff. So if you start to put all of those components together, now you've got a system. And so again, I'm a systems thinker. Looking at that. Um, you can now start to actually, even though they all intersect with each other and within the business, broadly speaking, you can at least account for them now. So accountants actually love this model because to, up until now, they've looked at sales as this kind of amorphous mess over there. They go, how the hell does that work? And why can't you give me a, 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 an accurate pipeline? <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> Laugh your head off. So once I show them that they'll never get an accurate pipeline, but if they support these various elements here, you know, and actually I forgot what Salesforce structure, because that's the type of Salesforce you need as well. Once they understand that, then they can see how the rest of the business can actually intersect and interact with that and then support it. And this is the type of thinking I want to take to not just sales leaders, but to CEOs and the senior leadership teams. Because once they understand how sales works, and if they genuinely want to be a customer-centric business, then they actually can do this with this model. And we've got interesting reports and benchmark studies, and we can audit all of this in businesses. And so for what I find, it's, it's really kind of a weird experience because you do the audit, and, you've got, and you get a calibration, and you get a score out of 100 on all of these elements I mentioned, and more. And then you can run a workshop uh, with management where you unpack it all and look at what's working, what's not, what's out of place, you know, what's here and everything. And then you actually sort it all out, have an action plan and, you know, and have a pathway moving forward. I can guarantee you every time we've run one of these workshops, even though we've probably only met the majority of people in these workshops for the first time, they will come and hug us. <laughs> it's weird because they're so grateful that finally this whole kind of mashed up kind of messiness has been made clear and they now know how to work with it and kind of all the guide ropes they can start to, you know, work with each. Like, a, I don't know, metaphors here and there, but spiders, webs, whatever you want to use, yeah. they can now see what's happening. And I think that is liberating for people mm. because now they can make better decisions and better, take better action and run better businesses. And that's what we like to help people do mm. through good selling. How do you measure your success as a leader? All right. Well, um, I've had a number of people come through my business over the years. I, you know, some have only stayed for a very short time, but the majority of people that have been with me and are with me have stayed for a long time. So I look at that as a, as a positive sign. Um, the people that have left, um, the ones you know who've been here for a while but have left to move on, I still am able to stay in touch with them. There's a genuine, I'm really glad I worked with you, I've learned a lot, it's now time for me to move on, fine. I want people to step into this business and actually, when they leave, to feel that they've actually bettered themselves. So not everyone has had that experience, of course, because sometimes it doesn't work out. I do remember one guy, many years ago now, it didn't quite work out, and he was pointing the finger at me and blaming me, but about four years after that, he wrote me a note saying he apologised for that, because he realised that he actually had the issue and he wasn't ready to work in a business like this, And but he was very grateful for what he learnt and 
I thought that was interesting. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you, in this business, um, you actually have to be quite self-aware mm. and um, and be a model of best practice. Mm. And that's quite challenging for some people, which means it's hard to find the right people. Yeah. But the people I've worked with, by and large, I absolutely love working with them. And when it's time to move on, it's time to move on. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you look to build capability in your business? So how do you go about building capability? All right. We're a perpetual learning coaching culture. So everything we do, we're always learning from it. We take stock and we always check things. We measure things. Um, You know, we'll measure how our sales efforts are going. We measure the effectiveness of our work with our clients. We measure its effect on us. So we're constantly reflecting and Every week, for example, um, we have what we call the weekly update and it's a, it's our reflection piece. So I'll send out a note to people on a Thursday night or Friday morning just as a reminder and everyone will send in their reflections of the week. So it's also um, um, talking about results. It also has other bits and pieces mm-hmm. and you know wins and challenges. But then each person puts in their own personal reflections. And it's been going now for about eight years. And we all enjoy it. And it's everyone, like on a Friday night, people really enjoy weekly, reading the weekly update. Um, so as a business, we're not huge, of course, but we run it as a really tight unit. And I think um, in doing so, you have this perpetual learning environment of keeping yourself update. We, we produce the 12 sales trends every year. So that just forces you to look outside. Yeah. We, we don't want to suffer from Stockholm Syndrome, mm. you know, mm. where we're held hostage and sort of side with the kidnapper, right? <laughs> uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of salespeople end up having Stockholm Syndrome with their clients yeah. and forget they have a fiduciary duty to their um, companies. So you want a win-win, fair exchange of value happening. But, uh, yeah, we don't want to have Stockholm Syndrome. So we keep ourselves fresh, read a lot, go out to different events, listen, talk to people. And quite frankly, we work with so many different organisations, you can't help but keep open-minded because you come across some business and you go, oh, okay, haven't thought of that. That keeps us fresh. Mm. So Hermione Granger lives on in our business. (laughs) (laughs) So I I often ask this question and I think uh, because of your profession, you you might find it a little easier. But uh, what I found in my journeys is that a lot of leaders don't actually see networking as a core component of their role. They tend to see their role as it's this and that's what I do. Talk to me a little bit about networking from your perspective. How do you go about it? What do you think about it? Okay. Well, funnily enough, um, as uh, vocal as I can be, I'm not the most sociable person going around. So I'm a bit of an ambivert. So I'm neither introvert nor extrovert. I I can be both. So um, networking for me actually, believe it or not, is difficult just simply because it requires you to go out and be sociable and you know talk to all sorts of people and stuff so I don't enjoy it but I do do it from time to time but I pick my mark and and look there are people who go out there because they just love it have a drink chat 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 and that's not me yeah so how do I manage it I look for strategic so firstly I just don't go random I'm targeted, surprise, surprise, and I will go to uh, events 
firstly that I think will be interesting, I could learn something from. Also too, if I can get a speaking gig at it, yeah. um, that's even better. And uh, But even if I don't, I have a little strategy that I use when I go networking. So okay. if you'd like to yeah, have a share, to. okay? Right. So if I'm speaking at an event, um, I arrive, obviously, make sure I've set up. There's usually half an hour, an hour or something, often before the event that the speaker gets up. And so what I do is I do little vox pops. So I go around and kind of interrupt little groups of people talking and I'll say to them, hi, I'm Sue, I'm actually speaking tonight. I'm sorry for interrupting. But what I'd like to know is what would you like to get out of the session this evening? You know, why have you come here? What would be of interest to you? So I interview people. And I get a really lovely reaction. I've never had anyone react badly to this. Firstly, they're often very surprised that the speaker, goodness me, would actually come around and actually talk to you. I don't see any... I mean, I'm very egalitarian. I don't talk to anyone. But I go and talk to them. And they then kind of, once they've kind of of settled from being taken aback, they then will share as much or as little as they like. Now... In those situations, I have a pretty good memory of what people say, which I then, of course, weave into, appropriately, into my presentation, which also they are very happy to hear themselves um, being... And I won't say necessarily the name of the person, but, you know, I met someone and they mentioned this, da 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 mm. Because my whole thing is that why would you turn up to an event and not want it to be about you, as in not me, about them? Yeah. So I want to make everything I do about the other person or the other people. So that's how I manage that. If I'm not speaking, then I will um, say to them something similar that, hi, look, you know, I'm curious to know what's, you know, made you turn up tonight. Look, the reason I'm here is that I would like to learn this. What would you like to learn? So again, I turn my networking activities into interviews. Okay. And that's how I get, and I may not get around to as many people like I would if I was speaking, because, I mean, I have a little bit more license to do that. But that's how I cope with my anxiety around networking. Okay. The interview technique. Yeah. I'll have to add that to the list. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like it. So uh, what does the future hold for you? Where are you wanting to take Barrett? What are you wanting to do? We've launched the Selling Better movement this year. We've written the Selling Better manifesto. And um, if people are interested, they can find it at sellingbetter.com. Um, but it is a uh, philosophy about ethical human-centered selling. It's about a fair exchange of value. It's about long-term and sustainability. We've written it for the 21st century world. Uh, I'm an eternal optimist. I've been carrying cloth shopping bags for 35 years. So <laughs> I'm, you know, those businesses that are really interested in wanting to do you know, good business, sustainable business, you know, clean business, whatever, and, and, and they want to actually, and there's a lot of, so many people out there that can start a business now, but they don't know how to sell. I'm doing this for them. Mm. So we've created all of these resources, you know, there's online stuff, there's all sorts of things that I want to put into the hands of, you know, every person who wants to do good work, the skills and capabilities about how to be a really cracking hot ethical salesperson and do great business because nature hates a vacuum. Mm. And given the current, you know, disgusting uh, stories we're hearing from the Banking Royal Commission, right, I am railing against that. So I've got to, we've got to offer something that is an alternative to that crap. 
Mm. So that's my mission. And as a business, how long will I be in it for? Well, I will always do something. I'll always be some freedom fighter, some you know, out there somewhere <laughs> doing something. But um, you know, I want this, you know, to carry on, share it with as many people as possible, help, you know, further this out there. Because the vast majority of people I meet, they like helping people. Um, they're curious. Um, they don't want to rip people off or be ripped off. And I want to help them. And so we've got lots of good stuff to do that. And I would like to shift the perspective that we've been dished up over the last 25 years of win at all costs. Yeah. And just offer an alternative and say, you know what, that doesn't work. Look at the disaster that's created. There's a better way. Okay. And how do you continue your development as a leader? Because one of the things I've noticed is that the the, the higher that people get in, in a hierarchy from a leadership perspective, the less likely they are to do formal training or a course or something like that. And they tend to look for other ways to continue their development. How do you do it as a business owner and a who's been around doing this for a little while. All right, well, besides all of the study that we do, reading and, and all the and application of what we do, um, there is this couple of things I think is really important. Um, so the first one I'll talk about is your mental health and well-being, emotional health and well-being. So there's a lovely woman um, who's a qualified psychologist uh, who I visit probably once a month, yeah. just for an hour, where I have a discussion with her because I don't need to put all any angst or any existential crises I might be having at the time onto anyone else. Yeah. So I make sure that once a month I go and visit her and even if it's just we have a cup of tea and have a laugh, it doesn't matter, but it's very, very helpful for my um, mental health and stability that I have a safe space that I can share any whatever thoughts I might have with someone who is you know, respectful of my situation. Mm. So I'm very grateful for Lynn and you know whoever you know and I encourage people to do this and it's not you know oh she has therapy. No, no, it's just this is where I go. Mm. And if I need therapy I get therapy. I don't it doesn't matter. I might give her therapy. I don't know. You know, we, mm. we just help each other. So that's very important for me, number one. And I've been doing that for over ten years now. And that's helpful. Um I get to meet all sorts of leaders out there, mm. and so you can learn not only what to do, but what not to do. Uh, so that, that's, that, that's a good thing as well, so I'm very conscious of that. Um, I go to the occasional courses uh, where I become accredited and study in different areas and things like Blue Ocean Strategy, for yep. example. So I do that. Um, but also, too, I have a, I have a thing that um, how coachable are you? Because uh, good leaders need to be great coaches as well. But if you're not coachable, then I think that is a real travesty as a leader. So I play hockey and I also swim and I have coaches there. Okay? And we also coach each other. So here at, at Barrett. So, you know, I'm not sitting back only coaching others. I get coached as well and, you know, told off occasionally because I've transgressed somewhere or something like that. But as a, as a sports person, um, being coached by someone, uh, to, it's, it's very, it's good. So how coachable are you, I would say to people. Mm. And I love being coached. I love coaching. Mm. And I find that makes me much better um, as a leader. Now, not the best leader going around, I'm saying, but I mean, I know for me. So they're the things that I do okay. as an example okay. and just read lots. Okay. So what challenges do you think your industry is going to face? The sales industry? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, 
the challenges that we face is that selling is ubiquitous. And a lot of people think they can just do it themselves. And they might be able to as an individual, but they don't know how they do it. So trying to teach other people how to be like them rather than how they do it, that's the challenge for any person in any business. So our challenge as a sales industry is to stop dishing up just sales methodologies, branded X, Y, Z, right? And treating sales um, performance as just a training issue. Now, I'm not there. I treat it very differently. But the whole industry is still stuck in that old paradigm of it's all about training. Why do you think that is? Because, as I said, for the last 200 years, they've been dishing up sales methodologies, mm-hmm. not running proper sales operations. Mm-hmm. And as the world gets more complex, you have to be able to have systems that actually manage that complexity. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got to stop. What our industry has to stop doing is being point solutions oriented or silver bullet oriented. Because that's what actually um, does not help businesses and salespeople mm. or customers at all. Mm. There's, there's good ideas in themselves, but alone they don't create the change you need to see. Yeah. The other thing is that um, once organisations realise that being customer-centric isn't about doing everything for the customer at your expense, but about a fair exchange of value, and if they can enlist everyone in their organisation to support that initiative, not just the salespeople, then really good stuff will happen. But there's very few people out there really genuinely helping organisations create the change to do that. So our industry is still stuck in the sales training paradigm, and uh, they can stay there. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, and um, you know, <laughs> but but it isn't helpful. I mean, we can't work with every single business out there, um, so. So we have to make changes, but it's, it's oh, it's so 20th century. <laughs> Are there any leaders that you look up to or that inspire you? This is a very interesting question because um, I think deeply about this. And the spate of celebrity CEOs in the last 20 plus years, I would just have a ritual burning with. They've just been a disaster. I don't ascribe to any of those icons. I mean, they're just, some of them are just nut jobs. Mm. That's not good leadership to me. So I would rather look at uh, people who may have a lesser profile. So there are people out there, for example, like, um, I'm trying to remember the names of people, they're, they're women. They're not very common. Okay. I think actually a very good leader is Michelle Obama. Mm. All right, from a, you know, just the way that she communicates and speaks and is true to what she says, I would give her, you know, a good tick mm-hmm. there. I really like what she stands for. This might be controversial, but I have great regard for Julia Gillard. Okay. Just the, the dignity with which she carried herself through that awful time, and I know that, you know, there was a leadership spill and all of that, but... To me, I think she's a very decent person, regardless of political, you know, I'm not worrying about, you know, ideologies or religiosity. I'm just looking at behaviour and conduct. I think that she got so much stuff done, even under the most, uh, you know, amazing pressure, if you think, if you actually go back and look at it. So there's that. Um, it's it's not easy. Um, Maria Montessori, I mean, she's dead now, but she is one of the seven pedagogical um, icons of education. 
um, she was a real trailblazer in terms of early learning. So I think she was a great leader of an idea and an initiative. That sort of stuff. That's that's what I look at. And we need to have more people step up and actually own their space mm. and not be... Um, actually, I, if I share this with you, it's, it's um, someone, a um, Jewish friend of mine, we were sort of looking at the state of politics in the world. He said there's this old saying about 2,000 years old that there'll be a time when there is no shame and leaders will act like dogs. And what he meant was that, and what it means is that if you think about social media where people just kind of expose anything, mm. we're kind of in that space. But what he meant by in terms of leaders will act like dogs, if you've ever owned a dog and you go to an off-leash park and the dogs, you know, you've trained it well, it will run ahead of you, right, but because you're the boss, it will turn around and check that you're there. And if you think about all the poll-driven politics that we're dealing with at the moment, that is how I don't even, I don't even want to call them leaders because they're not leaders. Mm. They're terrible. But they are all running around, self-absorbed, trying to see how they can get to the next election. We want statesmen, stateswomen, who think about not only the next election but the next generation. And I think that's what we need. Um, we need people like that who are there for the long term and prepared to actually nail their colours to the mast. Mm. Um, and I just don't, I don't think we're seeing it at the moment at corporate level in many cases or at political level. Mm. So um, I'm afraid I don't have many to offer up to you. <laughs> but the few that I have, I think about their conduct and, 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 their, and their dignity. Mm. Yeah. That's I don't, an, I don't I, know if that helps. It does. I think it's an important way to look at it because the media portrays certain people as the, the gurus of leadership and there's one in particular which really bothers me when I know that one of his businesses in Australia is completely non-profitable. Yeah. So he's supposed to be this icon of leadership but he doesn't have a profitable business so I have a real I do too. trouble with, yeah. with that. But it's the social profile which has built yes. this aura around him. And this is why you have to look beyond the, 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 the style of these things. I mean, look, you know, and I think of Elon Musk. I mean, he's pretty outlandish and done some pretty interesting things, but I don't see him as a good leader either. Mm. Mm. He's, he's just not stable. In fact, um, there's a lot of psychometric profiling that we do, and one of the um, – I don't know if anyone listening has ever done the Hogan inventories, but there's this um, leadership derailers segment of the Hogan inventories. Really interesting. And they actually came back with some. I went to one of the, um, you, know, you go to the the, the, the um, kind of refreshing classes, you know, you keep yourself up to date with it. Oh, it was last year, I think. And one of the 11 elements is excitable, okay? And it's the worst leadership trait to have. Because whilst you might be passionate, you're up and down all over the place. And people hate that. They hate this excitability. In fact, they're talking about different leaders, and we can just think of one at the moment who's mm. got, you know, got very excitable. It's <laughs> a bit Twitter mad. Um, it creates such inconsistency for people. It creates anxiety. And in fact, they've said, and I mean, you know, I'll just put the number out to verify. But I think they said that people reporting in the U.S. Uh, with depression and anxiety had risen by 35 or 40 percent since wow. you know who came into power. Wow. Because of the anxiety of this fluctuation, whereas someone like Angela Merkel, yeah. who might appear boring, but the work that she does, this she she's very stable, 
the consulting she does with people, the compromises she creates to create a stable government. Yeah. Well, I don't know how it's going to go with all that, but but so far, she has done an amazing job. So I would put her up there as a very good leader. Mm-hmm. So if people want to find out more about you and about Barrett, where should they go? Where would you direct them? Okay, they can go to Barrett, B-A-R-R-E-T-T, dot com dot A-U. They could also go to sellingbetter.com. They would be the two key areas. And, of course, if you want to find me on LinkedIn, send me an invitation. Happy to, you know, connect. Okay. Any last words on leadership for the listeners? Well, I was asked, I went to a Women's Around Table a couple of years ago now when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister, and it was run by the then Small Business Minister, um, now I've completely forgotten his name, doesn't matter. Um, and we were invited there to talk about uh, women, business, and leadership. And the final question, Bruce Bilson, that's his name, the final question that was thrown out to us, about 25 of us in the room, was uh, if you were Prime Minister for a day, what would you do? And I have my ideas. And I was about where he started around this great big round table at Four Treasury Place in, in Melbourne, which is where the Federal Cabinet meets if they're in Melbourne. Um, I was about three quarters of the way around the table and I was listening to all of these women speak and it was fine. But there was a lot of what I would call middle management solutions, you know, red tape here, something there, and a couple of interesting initiatives, whatever. And I went, will I say what I really want to say or not? And I went, no, I'm going to say it. Don't care. So I'm going to say it to you now. Good, you good. Okay. So I said when it got to me, if I was Prime Minister for a day, I would stop our descent into third world status by relying only on mining and tourism as our future. I said I would reset the vision for this nation where we could actually become the sunrise uh, nation of the world where renewable energy um, could be, of all the varieties, that we could actually be the model and example of that. Australia is, what, now 25 million people. We're not too small, we're not too large. We're like Goldilocks, we're just right to actually be the role model for the world of how to run a healthy, sustainable, viable um, nation. We could also be the food capital of the world. Uh, we're one of 14, uh, 16 nations that exports food, but Israel isn't one of them. Israel actually exports food off the size of a postage stamp using amazing technology that we could actually also use here in Australia with a much larger you know, land base to actually build out. So food. we could feed the world. With that renewable energy, as, as uh, I think it's Ross Garno says, we could actually become the manufacturing capital of the world because the energy costs would actually be, or at least high-tech manufacturing. You can see where I'm going with this. Yeah. All right. Australia has so much potential and I'm so sick of us being held hostage by people who are looking in the past. I want us to look forward to the future. There are plenty of great businesses I meet out there who have got amazing technologies, amazing people, amazing opportunities. We need leadership like that in this country and we could be freaking awesome. Pretty powerful way to finish the <laughs> the podcast, too. That's all right. My pleasure. I love it. Thank you so much for being for being a part of it. All the best. Thank you. Thanks, Julia. Enjoyed it. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergygroup.com.au. See you next time.